Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. So I don't think that I really have to do much convincing as to why a series about work is needed and helpful for us as followers of Jesus. But I will say this, as pastors, we have noticed through the years that there are some topics that people often need a lot of help and a lot of shepherding in over time. And we find that usually towards the top of that list are the topics of money, sex, and work. Those three things, I think, have the tremendous potential for good if we approach them in healthy ways and also have the tremendous potential for harm if we approach them in unhealthy ways. And so far as a church, we have done a series on sex, we have done a series on money, but we have yet to do a full series on the topic of work. So that's on the docket for this summer. Now, just a quick note about how we will approach this series sort of conceptually. In this series, we are going to be doing something that theologians call uh, biblical theology, or another word for it is canonical theology. If you want to impress whoever you eat lunch with after this, just tell them that this morning we did canonical theology. Uh, But you don't have to write those down. There's not going to be a test on it later or anything like that. Really what that means, the idea of biblical or canonical theology just means that we are going to take a look in this series at what the entire canon or the entire library of Scripture has to say about this particular topic of work. So we won't be picking one book of the Bible like we just did with 1 Peter or like we've done with Ephesians and Jonah before. Rather, we're going to be looking at the entire book of the Bible to see what all of it has to say about this topic of work. Sometimes that's a helpful way of approaching something as sort of comprehensive and broad as work is. So that's how we'll tackle it in this series. And one other thing that I'll mention that is actually very important for you to get as we launch into this series on work. When we use the word work in this series, we are not just talking about your sort of nine to five, five day a week jobs. One reason for that is that a lot of people's jobs don't even look like that anymore. They didn't before COVID hit, and they certainly don't now that COVID has hit our society. But also, we don't mean that when we talk about work. We don't mean just that because work is actually way bigger than that. For instance, one of my pet peeves is when people ask someone who is a mom, do you work or do you stay at home? Now, I get what they're asking. I understand what they're wanting to find out there. But do you see the sort of false dichotomy that that question operates on? The assumption there is that staying at home is not work. That staying at home with kids is not really work. And if you have ever stayed at home with kids full-time or part-time, you know that that is a very silly thing to believe because it is very much work. For most of our marriage, my wife has worked some weekends, which means I often stay at home with our two kids one to two days a week on my own. And I will tell you, I am every bit as much exhausted at the end of those days as I am when I go into the office for eight hours or whatever it is. So my point is that throughout this series, 
When we use the word work, when we talk about our work, we're not just talking about those of us that have a full-time or a part-time job in the traditional sense of that word. I'm talking about whatever it is that you spend the bulk of your time doing, at least for most of us. So if you're a stay-at-home parent, your work is parenting. If you're a student, your work is going to class and studying. If you're retired, there are still to-do lists and calendars that have to get made and meal planning and grocery shopping and paying bills and washing dishes and mowing the grass. All of that at the end of the day is work. And that's what we mean when we talk about work in this series. And if you add all of those things up, all of the different things that are considered work in our lives, you will find that the average American spends about half of their day every weekday on work. And if you add all of those hours up over the course of a person's lifetime, we find that the average American right now spends one-third of their entire existence working. Did anybody just get really sad all of a sudden when I said that? That's an awful lot of our lives that are devoted to work. So any way you look at it, I think it is worth considering and reconsidering how we think about and approach our work as followers of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do for the next seven weeks or so in this series. And as we begin, uh, let me just make you a sort of guarantee, a promise of sorts. I'm always hesitant to do this because I never want to overpromise on something, but I think this one is relatively safe. Here's the guarantee that I'll make you. If you will go through this whole series with us as a church family, so be here on Sundays for it or tune in online or catch the podcast for the weeks that you miss, um, and you actually wrestle and process through the things that we talk about each week in this series, ideally with other followers of Jesus in the context of something like a life group, I think if you do those things, you will come out the other side of this series finding at least a little more purpose and a little more meaning in your work. I'm not saying that you're going to go from hating your job to absolutely like skip hopping and jumping to work every day. That's not the promise I'm making. You still may not like what you do for a living. But I think I can make you the guarantee that if you actually go through this with us and you actually process the things that we're saying, that at the end of this series, you can find a little more significance, a little more purpose in your work than you did before. So, all of that said, here's where we will start for today. And this is sort of ground zero for everything that we will talk about for the rest of this series. We need to realize that all of us, right now, as we speak, whether we realize it or not, are viewing our work through a story. We're using a story to make sense of our work, whether we absolutely love what we do or absolutely hate what we do or anywhere in between. We all view our work through a narrative, through a type of worldview when it comes to thinking about our work. And we actually do this with anything that is confusing or difficult in our lives, but we certainly do it when it comes to something like work. So just to illustrate what I mean, let's say that you are hanging out at the park one day, somewhere around Knoxville, so you're at Sutri down here, or maybe you're at World's World's Fair Park hanging out. And while you're there, somebody that you don't know comes up to you, he walks up to you and your friends, and he says, the women have the sandwiches. And then he runs off. 
That's all he says. No introduction, no, hey, here's my name, just the women have the sandwiches, and he takes off running in the other direction. What you are going to instinctively do next is that you are going to put that experience, that interaction, into a story to try to make sense of it. It can't make sense. It doesn't make sense outside of putting it into a story. So one story could be that this gentleman is mentally ill. That's one story about that interaction. Another story would be that this guy is quite the raging sexist and somehow thinks that just because women in the park have sandwiches, they owe him those sandwiches. That could be another explanation. That could be another story about what just happened. Uh, It could be that the story is that there is a group of very kind-hearted women somewhere in the park that are giving out free sandwiches to anybody that wants them. Or it could be that this guy is a secret agent and he thought you were his contact And the code phrase that he was supposed to deliver to you and you were supposed to understand was the women have the sandwiches. So it could be any number of those different stories or any number of other stories, but what you are going to instinctively do as a human being is put that interaction into a story to try to make sense of it. And here's the thing, whatever you do next in that situation will be almost entirely determined by what story you think you're in. If this guy is mentally ill, then you might just smile and nod and say, it's great to see you, you have a nice day. If he's a sexist, then maybe you spend the next few minutes trying to help him understand that just because women have sandwiches does not mean they owe those sandwiches to him. Maybe this is your opportunity to educate a little bit, right? Or if the story is that there are women on the other side of the park that are giving out free sandwiches, maybe you go across the park and get you some free sandwiches. Or if he's a secret agent... Maybe you are about to accidentally step into a secret mission to rescue and save all that you hold dear, which, by the way, would be a great plot for a low-budget movie, right? Somebody who accidentally finds themselves in a secret mission to save the world. I think, pretty sure that movie's been made like half a dozen times. But whatever you do next, whatever actions you take, however you respond to that scenario, is almost entirely determined by what story you think you're in. Because the story that we are in shapes how we respond to different events in our life. Okay, you need to know that the same holds true of your work. The same principle can be applied to your work. So currently, right now, whether you realize it or not, you are viewing your work through a story. There is a narrative that you are using to try to make sense of what you do. And that story determines how you think about your work, how you feel about your work when you get up in the morning, how you talk to the people that you work with, and how well you actually do your work. All of that and more is actually determined by the story that you think you're in. So let's say that the story you're operating from in regards to your work is... I work because I need money to do the things that I like to do. That right there is a story. And if that is the story that you're operating out of when it comes to your work, that inevitably impacts how you do your work. That means you're probably going to work wherever pays enough for you to do the things that you want to do, whether you really enjoy that work or not. There's a good chance that you're always going to jump at the opportunity to take the next job that pays a little bit more, regardless of where or what it is, just so long as there are things there that you like to do with your money. 
You are going to try to minimize your work week and maximize your nights and weekends because nights and weekends are where life truly happens. You might even do the minimal amount of work you can do just to not get fired at your job because your job to you is little more than a paycheck. Who cares about whether or not you do your job well? Who cares if you treat other people at work well? Because none of that matters. At the end of the day, you're just there to get the money and go home. That's one story that you might be operating out of when it comes to your work. Or maybe the story you're living out of isn't that at all. Maybe it's something different. Maybe for you, the story is more like, I work because work gives me purpose. It gives me meaning. I work because without work, without my job, I wouldn't know who I was. And if that's you, you're actually going to be prone to overworking. You're going to take your laptop home every night and work until the late hours of the night, most likely, because the better you work, the more stuff you get done, the more purpose and identity you have. You're going to work long hours and long weeks. You're going to probably be okay with your social life and your mental health, suffering some as a result of all of that, because you need to fuel that sense of identity that comes from your work. The more work you do, the better work you do, the more established your identity in the world is. That's another story to operate out of when it comes to work. So can you kind of see how this plays out? Can you see how the story that we operate out of really determines a lot of how we approach our work and often how we approach plenty of other things in life? It's entirely determined by what story we are fitting our work into, which means, and this is the really important part, which means it is vital for us as followers of Jesus to fit our work into the correct story. It's vital that we fit our work into the story that the scriptures tell us about what work truly is. And that story about what work is and what the purpose of work is, believe it or not, starts on page one of our Bibles. So let's take a look. Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so the book of Genesis here is trying to unpack the very purpose of human existence. Why do we exist? Why are we here on planet Earth in the first place? These are questions that people have wrestled with for thousands of years in our society. And these verses just gave us an answer to those questions. They said that God made us, number one, to be his image bearers on planet Earth. That one most people tend to pick up on when they read this passage. But there's another one in there too. It then says that being made in God's image includes this idea of us having, quote, dominion. Did you guys see that in the passage? So the Hebrew word for having dominion is actually the word for ruling and reigning. It's the language of a king or a queen. They, they rule and reign over a part of creation. That's what kings and queens do. And that's actually the language of work, whether or not we recognize it as such. So we probably don't think of work that way. Like when people ask you what you did at work this week, you probably don't go, oh, I just ruled over my email for a bit or I just had dominion over this spreadsheet or this project. We probably don't use that language, 
But at the end of the day, that is just a way of describing what work truly is. It's having dominion over a certain part of creation. It's taking responsibility for a certain task or process or department or group of people. This is what work is, which means right here at the center of what God made human beings for is work. Author Richard Pratt says it like this in his book, God ordained humanity to be the primary instrument by which his kingship will be realized on the earth. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I am making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it, and then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and develop to its fullness. So there it is. That's what work was actually made to be in the beginning, a portion of God's kingdom to explore and develop to its fullness. God has given each one of us our own little corner of Eden, so to speak, to have dominion over and take responsibility for. And in the words of Richard Pratt, that in itself is an honor. It is a privileged commission from our great king. Which leads us to the first point from this passage, and that's that work is actually a blessing. Work is a blessing. It actually says it right there in verse 28 of chapter 1. It says, and God blessed them. And part of that blessing was the work that he gave Adam and Eve to do. So let that sink in for just a second. Work is a blessing from God. Some of us, I think, treat our work much more like it's a curse, don't we? Some of you at this point are going, yeah, whoever wrote the book of Genesis has obviously never been to my office and obviously never met my coworkers because my work is absolutely not a blessing. And to some degree, that's true. According to Genesis, work is eventually cursed. Yes, that's what we're really going to talk about to some extent for the rest of the series. But work itself was actually meant to be a blessing. It's actually a good thing. It is God giving us a part of his creation to take responsibility for, and that itself is a good thing for you and I to be given. Now, to get a little more specific on all of this, let's skip over to Genesis chapter 2, if you will. Here in Genesis 2, we're actually going to read about some of the same events as we just read about in Genesis 1, but this time it's kind of from a slightly different vantage point, if you will. So let's see what it says in Genesis 2, starting in verse 5. It reads, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So there was no vegetation on planet earth as of yet, because, keep reading, verse 5, the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. 
Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then skip down with me to verse 15 really quickly. This sort of summarizes everything that we just read. Verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God created the man. He created humanity in order to work. In the language of the passage, to work the garden and to keep the garden. So I don't know what imagery comes to mind when you think about the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible. I think growing up, I always envisioned it as like them just chilling indefinitely in paradise, right? So maybe they were like in a hammock just sipping pina coladas or whatever the case may be. Like I imagined the story as Adam and Eve having a life of leisure, primarily leisure. But I'm honestly not quite sure where I got that from. Because according to the story that we just read, God didn't create humanity to sit or to lay down or to sip on pina coladas, but rather to work. That's the reason that God created humanity in order to work. That's what the passage says. Genesis 2 says that God creates humanity in order to work the ground in the garden that he put them in. And here's what I want you to notice. Uh, it's not like God needed Adam and Eve to do the work in the garden in order for it to be done, right? It just told us that before humanity existed, God was just watering everything on planet Earth via a mist that came up from the ground. Throughout the creation story, God creates things just by speaking them into existence. So God did not need humanity in order to get this work done, not at all. He didn't give them work to do for his sake which tells me he gave them work to do for their sake, for humanity's sake. So here's what I mean. Just a couple, minutes, just a couple months ago, I'm sorry, we brought our four, four-year-old wit, one of those outdoor play sets. Uh, it's got like a sandbox and a fort and a swing set, the whole deal. So when we ordered this play set, uh, there were two options for putting this thing together. One option was to pay something like $500 extra to have people come assemble it in our backyard. The other option was to not pay $500 extra and assemble it myself. And I was like, $500, that's ridiculous. I'm a grown man. I'll just put this thing together myself. Worst decision that I ever made. Three days after sitting out in the hot sun putting this thing together, and I had never wanted to be $500 poorer in my entire life. Because it was a lot of work. But the point is, we eventually put it together, and most of the days that we put this thing together, I had Wit come outside and help me put this thing together in our backyard. I had this like typical dad moment where I was like, this will teach him the value of hard work, right? This will teach him to like work hard and then get to enjoy the fruit of your labor. You know how dads do with that kind of stuff. So here's the thing. Wit helping me put this thing together believe it or not, did not actually help me very much. I know that's shocking to you if you have kids, but it was, it was not actually all that helpful to me. He's four years old, so honestly, probably the only thing that changed as a result of him helping me put this playset together was that it took me about twice as long to assemble it as it would have otherwise, because every once in a while I had to like go find where he had put random pieces of the playset in our backyard. So I I I didn't actually experience much help as a result of him helping me with this thing. I really had nothing to gain by Wit helping me put this thing together. But Wit had lots to gain by helping me put this thing together. And that's precisely why I wanted him to do it with me. 
Because it was good for him to do. This work was good for him to do. And my point is that you've got to think that it was pretty similar with Adam and Eve and God in the garden. God did not create Adam and Eve to work because he needed a hand getting stuff done. He created them to work because he knew it would benefit them to work. In other words, work is good for us. Work is good for us to do. Uh, This is why... Inversely, unemployment for a lot of people can be such a grueling, heartbreaking process. This is why disability can be not only a physical hardship, but also a mental one. This is why all the data shows that when people cannot work anymore, the rates of depression tend to skyrocket in people. Because work is actually good for us to do. So it's not just good for the companies that we work for, for the people that our work benefits, It's also good for us personally to do ourselves. Let's keep reading around where we left off earlier in chapter 2, back up in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bajelum, or however you personally think that word should be pronounced, and onyx stone are there. Verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, be very honest. How many of you read that part of Genesis and just thought to yourself, what in the world is that all about? Like, why all of a sudden are we getting all this detail? Why all of a sudden are we talking about rivers and metals and stones? Well, several biblical scholars have actually noted that these details are meant to show us that Eden was chock full of raw materials. It was full of water and metal and stones and building material and resources. It had all sorts of potential in it. It just needed someone to come along and draw that potential out to come make it all into something. In other words, Eden needed to be cultivated. So work is cultivation. That's our next point. Work is cultivation. Work is taking unorganized, unstructured raw materials in our world and reshaping them into something beautiful and useful. Tim Keller actually puts it like this in his book, All About Work, which I would highly recommend to you. It's called Every Good Endeavor. He says this, Work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. That's what work is. And when you think about it, this is what all work actually does. All work cultivates. So when a farmer takes soil and seed and water and rearranges all of that into crops for people to eat and enjoy... When a builder takes wood from trees and rocks and metals and nails and screws and rearranges all of that into a home for somebody to live in. When a counselor takes a person's story or a person's trauma and combines it with counseling techniques and truth and practices that help the client process what is happening in their life. When a parent takes a baby and diapers and snacks and activities and discipline and reorganizes all of that to develop a functioning human being. 
When an educator takes ideas and concepts and data points and organizes all of that into a curriculum that students can understand and benefit from. When a graphic designer takes color palettes and typefaces and shapes and creates something beautiful out of all of that that communicates a message effectively. All work is actually cultivation. It's taking a collection of raw materials in our world and turning them all into something that helps people and societies flourish. Or at least I should say all good work is cultivation. So some work doesn't do this at all. The sex industry is not cultivation. It actually tears down marriages and relationships and creates addictions in people. Predatory lending doesn't do this. It actually takes advantage of people and makes them worse off than they were before. So some work, to be sure, is destructive to people and society. But all good work, all work worth doing, is cultivation. It's harnessing the raw materials of our world and making something beautiful and or useful out of all of it. So when you picture the Garden of Eden in your mind's eye, don't picture a perfectly manicured, meticulously laid out garden. That's not what it was. Picture something more like a raw jungle, a sort of untamed wilderness of sorts. There's all sorts of potential in it, but the potential hasn't been realized yet. It needs someone to come along and harness it, tame it, make it livable, bring out everything that it can and should be. One Hebrew scholar describes this Hebrew word for work in Genesis 2 as, quote, actively partnering with God to take the world somewhere. Actively partnering with God to take the world somewhere. That's what our work is at the end of the day. Now, I do think it's worth noting, at least briefly, that there's one other clarifying word in this passage. So it's not just that we are to work the ground and draw out its potential, but also that we are to keep it. That's the other language that it uses. So that word keep in the passage can be translated to watch or preserve. The NIV translation actually translates it to take care of the garden. That we are to take care of the earth. So work is not just about using the earth, it's also about preserving it. Whatever we do to draw out the raw materials of the earth and make something out of them they can't, be, it can't leave behind carnage or pollution or destruction in its wake. It can't leave the earth or parts of the earth uninhabitable as a result. The goal is to make creation better than we found it, not worse. Does that make sense? But given that work is done in that sort of way, this is the job that God gives Adam and Eve, and therefore us by association, to do. We are to take care of creation and to cultivate creation, to make something out of what we've been given. God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in a wilderness and says, all right, let's get to work. Let's take the world somewhere together. That's the mission at hand when we go to work. Such that if you skip all the way forward to the last couple chapters of our Bible, in the book of Revelation, here's what you'll find there. One day in the future, when God remakes everything in our world to how it should be. A lot of the same imagery from Genesis 1 and 2 actually comes back up. If you've ever read it, you'll notice there's a tree of life, there's a river, 
There's a statement about God's people ruling and reigning forever. There's a mention of there no longer being any curse. There's all this imagery in the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation that references back directly to the story of Genesis 1 and 2. So in many ways, the future of our world is a return to the very beginning. But there's one very important difference when you read through the book of Revelation. The world is no longer described as a garden. It is now a garden-like city, a city called the New Jerusalem. So there are now walls and gates and streets and homes and architecture and culture. You see, the Garden of Eden was never supposed to remain a garden. That wasn't God's intention for it. It was always supposed to become a city. God didn't just give us work to do to keep us busy until he comes back. That's not the story. He gave us work to do to join him in recreating the world as he intended it to be. And the way that it gets there is by you and I partnering with God to take the world somewhere. So here's my point. When you get ready to work tomorrow, whatever your work is, you are not just punching the clock. You're not just doing what you do to put a little bit of money in your pocket. You are partnering with God to take the world somewhere. You aren't just an administrative assistant. You are partnering with God to take the world somewhere through the process of administration. You aren't just parenting. You're partnering with God to take the world somewhere through raising healthy and thoughtful and creative human beings who make the world a better place. You aren't just a contractor. You are partnering with God to cultivate the earth, to draw out its potential and create spaces where people can live and work and function. Even if right now you don't have a job, I want you to know that you are not just applying for jobs. You are searching high and low for the next meaningful way that you will partner with God to take the world somewhere. You are not just in school right now. You are preparing in every way that you possibly can to take the world somewhere in a meaningful way. With every meeting, with every interview, every task, every class, every budget, every proposal, you are joining God in cultivating the earth, in organizing and leveraging and drawing out the raw materials that he gave us to take the world somewhere with him. You see, to make work meaningful in your life, to give your work purpose, you don't actually need a new job. You don't actually need a new salary. You don't need a new boss. You don't even need new coworkers or really anything else. You actually just need a new story. You need a new story for your work. You need to see your work the way God sees your work, the way the scriptures tell us to see our work with purpose and with dignity and with meaning and with value. That's what we need when it comes to work as a new story. Now, I know all of that is very big picture. And like I said, we're going to get very practical in this series as we go along. But maybe all of that, everything we just talked about is like, yeah, that sounds great in theory, but I just don't get it when it comes to my day-to-day work. I just don't get it when it comes to what I do nine to five or whatever it is that I spend most of my time doing. So to help with that or to begin to help with that, I've got a little bit of homework for us, so to speak. It's very simple, but at the same time, it's absolutely crucial for us to do if we want to begin to see our work through the right story. There's one question I want all of us to attempt to answer this week in response to all of this, and it's this question. 
How does my work connect to God's story? How does my work connect to God's story? That's the question. I want you this week to take your work, whatever it is you do, parenting, accounting, insurance, brokering, selling houses, practicing medicine, whatever it is that you do, and I want you to begin conceptually connecting it to God's story of work, God's story of taking the world somewhere. So here's a handful of different ways to sort of get at the answer to that question. A couple of other questions that I think all connect to that central question I want you to answer. So one way of asking it would be, how does my work contribute to the common good in our society? Another would be, who or what does my work benefit? Another question would be, in what way is the world a better place as a result of my work? Another question would be, what wouldn't happen if I and people like myself didn't do our work? And lastly, how does my job contribute to other people's joy or quality of life? How does my work contribute to other people's joy or quality of life? So those are just some different ways of getting at that central question, how does my work connect to God's story? So obviously, some of those questions are going to be more helpful to you than others, depending on your profession and the nature of what you do, but they're all different ways of exploring how to see your work through the lenses of the scriptures, and through that to begin finding purpose and meaning in your work. So spend some time doing that this week. If you're struggling to answer that question on your own, uh, maybe bring the questions with you to your life group this week and let them help you sort of think through it. But just to give you a head start, I want to just do a couple together before we're done. So I just want to show you how this works. And maybe let's just pick a couple of types of professions that maybe are a little bit harder to see how they connect to God's story, just to show you that it's possible. So first, let's take the job of data entry. Let's say that's what you do for a living, 20, 30, 40 hours a week. You type numbers or information into a computer and you hit enter. On the surface, that may not feel like you are partnering with God to take the world much of anywhere, right? And maybe that's what you dread every single day about your job, is that it doesn't really feel like you're doing anything meaningful. But here's the thing, generally speaking, the reason that data entry jobs exist in the world is because the company or the client that you work for needs that information in an organized, viewable format so that they can analyze that data and make decisions from them. So without you and people like you doing the work that you do, it would actually be much more difficult and cumbersome for them to make decisions that need to get made. So believe it or not, you actually are in a very Eden-like way taking the raw materials of unorganized numbers and data and you are putting them into an organized format where they can be useful and helpful to the world. So you are joining God in taking the world somewhere through entering data, believe it or not. Let's do one more and then we'll be done. Let's say that what you do for a living is that you work retail. Let's say that you work a retail job. Now, maybe for you on the surface, that may also not feel like you are doing anything meaningful or purposeful. But it actually is meaningful and purposeful because when retail is done well, it creates an environment where people can easily find and purchase the things that they need, right? So have you ever been to a store where everything is in its place. Like you walk in 
and the shirts are over here, and they're separate from the pants, and those are separate from the shoes. And then you go to find something in your size, like you're going to find a shirt, and turns out all the shirts are in ascending size order. So the smalls are in the front, and the extra larges are in the back, and you just flip to your size and you grab one. Isn't it a wonderful thing to experience when a store is organized like that? Now, have you ever considered that somebody had to make that happen? Have you ever considered that somebody had to put those things in that order and probably multiple people had to circle the store on a regular basis and take care of people who, like me, try something on and then put it in a random place? I'm so sorry if you work retail. But somebody had to do that, right? Somebody had to see to it that that was done, that their little corner of Eden was taken care of and organized and structured and done well. And on the flip side, have you ever been somewhere and trying to find something in a particular store and you asked an associate and what they said to you was, I don't know, I'm sorry, and then walked off? Or gotten the classic answer to your question, where is this thing where they say, I don't know, I just work here. Isn't it low-key infuriating? So it turns out that even if you work retail and you don't feel like your job has any purpose whatsoever, any grander meaning whatsoever, it turns out you have the potential to create environments where people can get to what they need and find what they need and purchase what they need, or you have the ability to make them hate everything about your store, right? It turns out even something like retail that maybe we don't feel like is all that meaningful actually is very meaningful. You are still creating order and structure and function in God's world, even if you're, in your mind all you do is fold clothes and hang them up or whatever it is. So what I want you to do this week, just like the two examples that we just went through, is to take your work and connect it in your mind to God's story about work. If it's good work, there is a connection. And I'm not saying it's always easy to see the connection or that we'll always be terribly excited about the connection once we see it, but the connection is there. All good work is a part of God's story of work. And when we begin to see how our work connects to God's story, even if we're not terribly in love with what we do, we can still find purpose and still find meaning in what we do. We can still find motivation to get up in the morning and go to our job and do our job faithfully and well because we realize that we are partnering with God to take the world somewhere through our work, which is exactly what we were all made to do as human beings and as image bearers of God. So if you want to feel like there is meaning, there is purpose in your work, this is where it starts. We're going to get very practical throughout the rest of the series, but it all has to start with seeing our work through God's story and letting that inform and color everything else about our work. Does that make sense? Okay, let's pray together. Father, um, I just want to pray briefly for anybody in the room who just struggles a lot with work. God, I don't know the specifics of it, but I would imagine um, for quite a few of us, work is just an absolute dread every day when we, work up, we wake up. And I feel like we were working a, a dead-end job that we've been working at for years, and it just doesn't seem like it matters at all. And 
God, if we could, and we could survive without it, we would quit tomorrow. Or maybe for other people in the room, um, maybe our work itself isn't all that bad. Maybe we don't hate it, but it's just the environment that we work in. And it just feels like it's so toxic and and so unhelpful. And and the people there are just really hard to relate to. God, we'd be amiss to, to not mention that right now maybe some of us are out of work maybe because of everything going on in the world right now or maybe just just coincidentally we're just out of work right now and we're trying to desperately figure out what we're going to do next. We feel a little bit anxious about it and don't really know where, where rent's going to come from or where our mortgage payment's going to come from. And so God, I, I want to especially just first off pray for people in those types of situations in the room. God, I want to pray that you would um, speak life into their soul in relation to their work. God, I want to pray that you would fill them with purpose. God, that you would give them new eyes to see their work. And God, that through that, you would help them to get through the the many undesirable things about their day-to-day. God, I want to pray for those of us that um, are at a job, and maybe it's even a job that we really, really love, um, but we just feel like we're constantly failing. We just can't do it right. We can't do enough things right. We can't do enough things right often enough and we just wake up every morning dreading feeling like a failure God I want to pray for for those people in the room that you would remind them of who they are in you God that you would help them see that they're made in your image that they've been rescued they've been set free by you God, pray that that would take over how they view themselves. That that would resonate as in them as far more true than any mistake, any mess up that happens at work. And God, for all of us, um, regardless of where we're at, how we think about our work, how we feel towards our work, I want to pray that you would help us to connect what we do to your story about work. God, I want to pray that we wouldn't see it as incidental, that we wouldn't see work as something that we do because we have to or because we're supposed to, but rather we would see it as something that we get to do as a privilege from you to join you in taking the world somewhere. So God, as as we kind of wrestle through that central question this week, I pray that you would just, you would help connect the dots in our brain, maybe in ways that has never happened before, to understanding how our job, however much we love it or hate it, actually connects to your purpose for the world. And God, that through that, you would give us new life. You would help us to relate to our work well as followers of Jesus. That's our prayer. That's what we want. And so we ask that you, by your spirit, would help us get there. We ask this in your name.